why don't you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Believe it or not, we've been in this series, Rags to Righteous, preaching through the book of Romans now for over a year. We have exactly, Lord willing, nine sermons or so left in this book. And I wanted just to spend a couple of minutes this morning forecasting for you as the church family where we're going to go from here in terms of preaching. So once we come back from Thanksgiving break, we will uh, begin our, a, a series through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to start that actually in December. Um, that way we can sort of preach through the infancy narratives right at Advent season. See what we did there? And um, we're really excited about this um, particular series. Now, there's a lot of new folks here since we first started the Book of Romans. And I thought we would just take a couple minutes just to kind of explain for those of you particularly who are new, why we do what we do here on Sunday mornings in terms of preaching. Our, our typical pra practice is that we preach through sections or books of the Bible kind of in chunks versus what we might call topical preaching. And by topical preaching, I mean it's sort of up to the, the pastor or the preacher to determine week to week what to preach on. And so let's, this week we'll preach on anxiety, and this week we'll preach on money, and that week faith, and this week money, uh, suffering, and worship, or, or what have you. Know, Freudian slip there, right? And understand something. Topical preaching has its place. There are those times that we need to stop and pause and address something that is directly before us from the Word of God. However, if a church's main diet or steady diet is topical preaching, here's, here's what will end up happening. The preacher or people like me, whoever is preaching in, in my place, we're going to end up gravitating to the texts that we really like, that we're really comfortable with, that are really in our sweet spot, and we're going to sort of, shall we say, take a detour around those passages that might be most convenient to avoid or that are particularly convicting or just, let's be honest, controversial and we don't want to get into that and people might be upset. And so when we commit to preaching through the book of, 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 book of the Bible, God's word sets the agenda. God's word is what determines week to week what we are going to talk about. And I think two things happen in a church family when, when we commit ourselves to this. And this is also true, by the way, in your own personal study and application and reading of Scripture. First, we just get a better grasp of the whole counsel of God, right? We, 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 we better understand the totality of Scripture and what God has to say about all of life and not just specific individual things. And I think this is really important for our biblical maturity, for our biblical fidelity, for our theological growth. So I think that's one thing that happens. A second thing that happens, though, when we commit to letting the Word of God set the agenda is that oftentimes it sets us on a collision course or a holy collision course between ourselves and God. Now, you may have heard recently about the rocket that NASA just sent up into space to collide with the asteroid. Do you remember, have you heard about this? I think it was a secret mission to communicate to the aliens, but that's for another time. But, but really what it was was sort of a dress rehearsal for doomsday, right? So if, our, if an asteroid was hurtling toward Earth and none of us knew it, and could we send a rocket and it knock it off its path? And that, that was the idea. Guys, that's what the Word of God does in our life. See, we're kind of going about doing our thing, kind of feeling confident, self-assured, self-sufficient in, in what we know, what we're doing, how we're conducting our life. 
then all of a sudden the word of God comes hurtling in like a comet, like an asteroid. And it, and it makes this collision with our lives, and we end up having to address things, let's be honest, that we might otherwise want to avoid. Things that are not super comfortable. And God does this to correct our course as part of his goodness. And there's really no better example of this than our topic this morning in Romans chapter 13. And that's our relationship, my relationship, your relationship with the government. Now, I must confess, I want to preach on this as much as I want to take my family on a, on a vacation to a toxic waste site, okay? I, I mean, because let, let, let me be brutally honest. Guys, for the last 30 months, this has been the meta-narrative around everything the church has wrestled with, right? I don't mean just this church, I mean the church globally, mandates and shutdowns and restrictions and travel and worship and all of the stuff. And let's be honest, it's just now starting to feel like normal again. And it's like, why in the world, God, would you want to come and just stick a stick right in it, right? It's like one of the children that just knows what irritates the other and they do it just to do it. I've heard about this happening in other people's houses. You understand, right? Well, that's what we have here in Romans 13. So I have to, as, as pastor, to take a step back and say, okay, God, you're obviously wanting to do something in our hearts. You're obviously wanting us to sort of bring ourselves to your word, to bring ourselves under your word and have you shape our, our life. And that's what I hope and pray happens as we dig into Romans 13. Romans 13, by the way, is not going to answer all those questions. However, Romans 13 is going to answer the most important questions, and that should tell us something. You see, Paul says, offer up your bodies as living sacrifice, as a spiritual act of worship. Here's how you do it personally. Here's how you do it in the church. Here's how you do it in relationships. But now he says, Here's how you do it in relationship to the authority figures that God has placed in your life. So that's where we're going. Romans 13, I'm going to invite you to stand. Never could seven verses say so much and generate so much discussion and, let's be honest, controversy. But we're praying that God would be gracious to us. Verse 1 of chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Lord, um, we, we have to chuckle just a little bit because your timing is, um, it's yours. And so, Father, we trust and pray that you have the words of life for her, for us here in this text this morning. And Lord, we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Here, you can say a lot of things about Romans 13. It's difficult to apply. Um, it's, you know, we have a million questions we bring to the text. But let's be honest, it's not difficult to understand. I mean, it's really very straightforward. And I think we find Paul's main thesis or theme stated very plainly in verses 1 and 5. Look there for a second. Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection. So that word subjection means to obey, to submit, to come under. And Paul says, if you want to know the essence of what it means to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God in the area of your citizenry, here it is, submit. Now, I would love just to pray right now and to go home, okay? But that's not going to happen. Let's address the theological elephant in the room. Every, when I say that, if you're human, have a pulse, you're paying attention, and you're a Christian this morning, you, are, you, you should actually say to yourself, but Pastor Paul, what about, right? Aren't you saying that into your mind, in your heart and mind this morning? What about, what about slavery, Pastor Paul? Or COVID shutdowns? Or Nazi Germany? The Revolutionary War, Jim Crow? Martin Luther and the Holy Roman Empire, Pastor Paul, aren't these examples sort of defeater arguments for Paul's thesis here? Come on, we're living in the real world. And guess what? So was Paul. No one was more tethered to the real world than Paul, as we will see. But this is just sort of a, a, a warning to us, right? Again, we don't come to God's word without... We don't put God's word on the witness stand and interrogate it and say, I've got these 12 things and I demand God that you answer them in this way, in this time, according to my preconceived notions. This isn't how this works. We come as a blank slate and we say, God, what do you have to say about everything? Not just this area, but every area. Let your will be done. Now, with that said, there are things that Romans 12, uh, Romans 13 is super clear about. There's other things that it's not super clear about, which means that this is, unless, unless we want to stay here two hours, which I'm up for it, okay, this is going to be two sermons at least, but probably just two. And here's how I want to divide this up. We want to spend today primarily digging into the text as it presents itself. And we're going to do that through the lens of authority, because that seems to be sort of the, the fulcrum, the pivot point of 
everything that Paul is saying. And we're going to be asking, what is the rightful place of authority? That's what Paul's trying to communicate. Next week, we're going to address more of those what about questions because the scriptures aren't silent on those, are not silent. They say a lot. They just don't say it in this text. And I think because of the time and the day and the season that we're in, it's worth it for us to spend some time there as well. But that's going to be next week where we talk about the governing authority's limits. Okay? It's an important point. It's just not Paul's point today. So three, three things we want to say about authority this, this morning. And here we go. We're going to talk about the context of authority that Paul writes from. Paul's not writing from the ivory tower, right? We want to talk about the design of authority. What, what is God given? What, what's his eternal intricate design to authority relationships? And then finally, the function of authority. And this is where we're going to be more, a little more specific about government and its rightful place, what it should rightfully do according to the word of God. So that's, that's where we're going. All right, let's look first at the context for authority. And here's what we're, we're asking. We're saying, Paul, why this passage right here, right now? Why this topic? And I think to understand that, we have to, to go back and look at the flow of Romans chapter 12. Last week, we left off talking about these admonitions that Paul has that he's been given to believers. And he's telling us hard things. He's saying, hey, if you've been wronged, Turn the other cheek. Don't return evil for evil. He says, in fact, return evil with good. Leave vengeance to the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. As far as it's up to you, live peaceably with all men. And I think that would naturally raise a question. I think it should raise a question. Well, Paul, what about societal injustice? Is there, is there no recourse when people are harmed or robbed or murdered or taken advantage of or, or abused? What about these circumstances, Paul? And I think what Paul is meaning to show is that, yes, there is recourse. Believers and unbelievers do have recourse with these things, and it has to do with the governing authorities. And this is what the governing authorities should do about those kinds of things. I think that's part of what Paul's rationale here is. Here's a second contextual thing going on, and we cannot overstate this. We cannot overstate the ubiquitous and unpredictable presence of all things Roman in this world. Because not only was Rome a mighty empire, it was the greatest empire in the history of the world. It was all pervasive in every single person's life, it wasn't like in the background, right? It was like in your face all the time. You're constantly being reminded of it. Soldiers were everywhere that you went. So if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know that there are soldiers everywhere. This was a way of life in the ancient Roman world. There was a radical distinction between the aristocrats who ruled and everybody else, primarily who were slaves, you were reminded of that all the time. You were either in or out. There was a very, very small middle class, minuscule. There was the specter of the gladiatorial games all the time. This wasn't like going to Dope Campbell, right? These were slaves 
who were put on display for the purpose of slaughtering one another for entertainment purposes. Emperor worship was a growing reality. There was this idea, you can worship whoever you want to worship, but you better bow the knee to Caesar at a moment's notice, or it could mean your life, it could mean your job, it could mean prison. And then let's not forget the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was said that you could travel anywhere in the Roman Empire and be safe. Why? Because Rome was ruthless. They invented, can you imagine this? They invented crucifixion. And this specter of hard-line authority was ever-present all the time in the life of everyone who lived there. And let's, re let's remember, this was particularly true for the church in Rome. So Paul's writing this letter about 55, 56 AD, and it was only a few years prior to this that Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, now Nero was the emperor as Paul is writing, but at the time, Claudius was the emperor, he had issued a decree to kick all of the Jews out of Rome. Apparently, Jews and then Jewish Christians were, were engaged in conflict, and this was typically what we saw happen in, on Paul's missionary journeys. Christians would come in, they would be sharing the gospel, the, the Jewish authorities would, would rise up, they would kick the, the Christians out. Well, apparently, Claudius didn't know a Jew from a Christian, didn't care, just said, all of you are out. Kicked them all out. It's been only maybe a year or two that Jews, Christian Jews, have filtered back into the church. And this is one reason Paul's writing, remember we talked about this a long time ago, there was division, there was conflict between Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. But the, the reality was is that at any moment, at any time, any day, you could be forcibly removed from your home. You could be told to leave the city and wander around the empire. In other words, a person's existence in this ancient world was very precarious, and this would have been particularly true and fresh on the minds of the church in Rome. But there's a third contextual thing I think that's happening as well. And I think there was a very specific circumstance that was leading Paul to address the relationship with the governing authorities, and none of us are going to like this, so I should have, should have preached this on April 15th, right? But it was the paying of taxes. Apparently, because notice Paul talks a lot of general stuff in here, but when it comes to taxes, he's very specific. And it's basically his, his mantra is, pay the man, right? That, that, that's what he says two or three different times. Apparently, Christians had a hard time in their conscience paying taxes to Rome. Because, come on, Apostle Paul, don't you know what Rome does with our money? Don't you know the genocide that they fund and the wars and the gladiatorial games and the false gods and the debauchery and the corruption? We don't want to give our money to that. And, of course, Paul knows all of this all too well. I said before, Paul is, Paul, Paul is not a distant, abstract figure here, right? Paul has had arrests and beatings and trials and injustice and unjust leaders and finally martyrdom, which makes what he says here in Romans 13 particularly astounding. If there's anyone, any Christian who ever could have said, this is unjust, this is not right, 
take up arms, rebel against the authorities, would it not be the Apostle Paul? But amazingly, he doesn't say that. Which brings us to our second point, what does he say? And this, is, this is where we're going to kind of dig into the design of authority, or why authority in God's kingdom is a, is a big deal. Look at verse 1, for, Paul says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And there's two things I want you to hone in under this point about the design of authority. And here it is. We're going to flash these on the screen. Number one, authority, at least in terms of its design, that is a God idea. That is not a man idea. It is a God idea. Now, man has abused it, and we'll talk about that in a second. But God is the one who designed it. And one of the reasons God designed and gave us authority is that, in fact, it is a reflection of his nature. Do you realize that there is sort of what theologians would call a functional authority even in the Godhead? Now, we know that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are, are, are one being, same in essence. There's not, there's not, a, there's not a hierarchy okay, in the Godhead. But what there is is that there are different roles given to each of the members of the Godhead, which they have, in a sense, assigned themselves. And so we, we see all throughout Scripture, God is the one who's electing, ordaining, sending out. The Son is going, serving, dying, praying. The Holy Spirit is then applying all of the work and plan of the Father and the Son. And so this idea that, that there are roles or jobs, if we can use those terms of the Godhead, of God, in the Godhead, God says, I, I, want, I want you to understand that I'm a God of order. I want you to understand my design because my design for authority is based upon who I am in my being. And so God gives us authority so that we can see his nature. As we'll see, God has given us authority to help us flourish. And now, we see this not just in government authority, but this is true in marriage, it's true in the church, in the workplace, in classrooms, in all sorts of authority structures. Now, let, let, let's acknowledge something very quickly here. Culturally, these are fighting words, right? I mean, this will get you canceled. This will get you kicked off the island. This will—I mean, this—I mean, this is this this is this is heresy, cultural heresy, because we're a culture allergic to authority. And sometimes, can I just say this? For good reason. Let's not be naive. Let's understand, right, that there have been severe abuses of authority in marriages, in churches. In schools, governments, denominations, in the workplace, that is all true. And there are good reasons why people are suspicious or even downright ornery to authority, right? But what we have to understand is that the problem is not with authority. 
The problem is not with the institutions. The problem is with people. And anything people get involved with, because of our sinfulness, we are going to corrupt. But just because there are heretical sermons doesn't mean that we abolish preaching. Just because there are bad parents doesn't mean that we don't promote having children and raising a family. Just because there's abuse in marriage doesn't mean that we don't, we don't highlight the goodness of, of one man and one woman. You, you, you understand the difference. But there is such an instinct culturally to level the ground in every possible way. And what we will come to understand, and I think what we're coming to understand, you can't start fiddling with authority structures in the Word of God, things that God has made crystal clear, and not do great damage to the gospel, and not do great damage to the doctrine of God himself. Because once, once that becomes fair game, once we begin questioning and say, is, did God really say this? And, what, and once we begin fiddling with that and say, there's got to be a better way, a different way, a more culturally sensitive way, we open ourselves up to all sorts of mischief when it comes to tampering with the Word of God. So, so all of that to say, authority as an institution, as a good, is God's idea. Number two, under this point of the design of authority, and this is going to get pressed, press the moment here a little bit for us. Not only is authority God's idea, but specific governing authorities are established by God himself. And by specific, I'm meaning personal, individual, organizational. Go about, look at the text. Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And that word appointed it's the same word for ordained or chosen as it relates to salvation. In other words, God has ordained, God has chosen that specific person or that specific group of people to govern in that time and in that place. This is why I say God appointed specific authorities, okay? Because let's be honest, sometimes we sitting in the pew have or the chair, whatever we're in, right? We have no problem saying, oh, I get that, Pastor Paul. Oh, yeah, I love authority, except my boss, um, or except my husband, or except my elders, or except my community group leader, or, in other words, authority as an abstract, totally fine. I'm great with it. But when the rubber meets the road, sometimes we can have a big, big problem with authority. And what Paul is wanting to emphasize to us here is that he is not speaking in the abstract because for every person reading this letter, as they're gathered like this in the church in Rome, who is, they're not thinking about authority as, a, as an abstract, ethereal figure. Who are they thinking of? Nero. Paul says, submit to Nero. He was appointed by God to be my Servant. Now, that's an interesting word that God calls governing authorities. Look in verse 4. First, he calls them his servants. That, the word for that is diakonoi. It's the same word that we get for deacons, of course. And then in verse 6, he calls them ministers. And it's actually a religious term. It doesn't mean that governing authorities 
perform a religious function. What it does mean is that they are working as God's proxy on his behalf to bring order and stability and flourishing to a society. And guys, this is, this is a tough one for us. It's a tough one for me. Because I have to ask myself, Paul, what is your attitude, not towards authority in general, but to specific people? Specific people I see their political ad. Specific people that I might see them governing in Congress or the White House. Guys, how many times over the past 10 years, and guys, we need to be sobered about this. Have we said, or have I said, anybody said, he's not my president. Lock him up, lock her up. Obscene, obscene chants, derision, scorn, memes. If we spent half the time praying for our leaders, holding them with what Paul calls respect and honor as we do deriding them and degrading them. And, and we're, I'm not talking about agreement. That, that's next week's sermon, right? But that's next week. This week is this week. Paul says you better respect. You better honor. This is God's chosen servant, not generally, but specifically. Two verses to back this up. There's many, many more, but here are two. Here Daniel is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. Ruthless, heartless, um, genocidal maniac Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what Daniel says in Daniel 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. John 19. This is this, this is persuasive to me. Jesus is having a conversation with Pilate. Now, you remember who Jesus is. He's God. He made Pilate. Okay, just keep that in mind. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What did Jesus say here? Not, not, you're, not my, you're not my Pontus. You're not my Pilate, right? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. See what Jesus is saying here? Pilate may be misusing his authority, but his authority in and of itself was rightly given to him by God. And so, Four Oaks, we need to tread very carefully that we don't heap scorn on God's anointed. We pray for our leaders. We hold them in respect. We honor them. As we'll talk about next week, there is a place okay, for, for, um, to resist, but, that, but that's not, again, not today's sermon. I, have to be, I, I so much want to qualify what I'm saying right now. But if I did, I, I think it would lose its impact. Because we, we need to feel the full weight of this upon us. All right, before we leave this point, last thing here on this one. Okay, Paul, we get it. So what does it say, submit, don't resist? What does that mean? Give it to me straight. I think what Paul is exhorting us to, and, and this is, he's, he's exhorting us to our default position. 
In other words, all else being equal, this is to be our posture. This is, this is to how we are to situate ourselves in relationship to the governing authorities around us. Tom Schreiner says it this way. What we have here is a general exhortation that delineates what is usually the case. People should normally obey ruling authorities. The intention in Romans is to sketch in the normal and usual relationship between believers and ruling power. That's in essence, I believe, what Paul is exhorting to. He's acting as if you and I don't have any instruction at all. We don't have any preconceived notions about authority in our life. And we're sort of noetic, pure. We're ready to receive as a blank slate. Paul says, let me tell you the ideal picture of what authority is supposed to do in your life. Here it is. I think that's what Paul, in essence, is, is giving us. Now, our last point, I want to bullet out quickly for us four things under the function of authority that I think we see in this text that Paul says government rightfully does. It doesn't mean they're the only ones, but they are four primary ones that we see. And let's start with the first one, and it's going to be the most painful, right? But government is supposed to collect taxes. Verse 7, pay to all, to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And the idea here is that as a ministerial function, just like we give money to the church for the performance of ministerial functions, well, the church, I mean, the, the, the government is God's minister in a way. We pay taxes in order to receive the services rendered by government. And so here, here is a question for us just to chew on, okay? Have you ever considered that paying taxes is a spiritual act of worship? Can I be honest? I haven't. And I don't want to, to be quite honest. You can ask my financial advisor and my CPA, they will tell you that I don't approach these things as a spiritual act of worship. I approach them, they're screwing me, excuse me, and I'm going to screw them, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm very tempted to think about all of the ways they are wasting our money, all of the horrific things they're spending it on. How can I get right up to the edge of the cliff and be okay before God? And make go, where is that line? That, that, that's my posture. I don't know. Maybe it's yours. I don't know. One of the fundamental acts of submission, Paul says, is pay it. Just pay it. I, 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 can't, I can't even begin to speculate what's happening here, but somehow this is all wrapped up because giving is where the rubber meets the road for so much of us, so many of us. And Paul's saying, here's your ult. Are you really going to be submissive? Then pay your taxes. Number two, it's very clear that government is meant to, and I guess we could... Well, these next two can kind of go together, but we'll treat them separately. Restrain evil. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Because when you are on the freeway and you pass an officer, a patrolman, highway patrol, what is the first thing that you do? Oh, you laugh. You know. You look right down at your speedometer, right? And you think, how fast was I going? 
And as you look down upon that speedometer, because you know in your heart you weren't going the speed limit, you're just trying to do the math, how fast, how faster than the speed limit was I going, how big is this ticket going to be? Are the blue lights coming? If they're coming, maybe they're going to get the person behind me, right? That's always the rationale. I, I think police officers just laugh, laugh at this kind of stuff, right? Well, what's the idea here? Fear, there is a sense of a godly fear, a holy fear that is a deterrent to know that if I transgress, then there is a punishment, there is a penalty. It's, it's a, it's a God-given authority. The police officers in our life are God-given authorities. And one of the things that Paul is, is saying here is that if we're doing the right thing, guess what? You don't have to worry. And I think that's what he, what, what he get, that's the flip side of the coin on the third one here. The government exists to promote order. Look, at, look back at the text. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. How do we receive the government's approval by living an upright and godly life? I mean, is this the kind of thing where I'm driving down Cary Forest and the policeman stops me and thanks me and gives me a gift card for going the speed limit? Is that what happens? No. I think it's a great idea, but No. We are given approval by the fact that we're not punished, that we're not arrested, that we're not messed with. See, there's this, this idea that there's an unhealthy fear, right? And fear inhibits flourishing. But when you have a clear conscience... And when you know you are doing the right thing and living, living the life that God has called you to in whatever area of your life it is, that is an incredibly freeing thing. It's not a confining thing. We tend to think about um, licentiousness as doing whatever we want and finding such great freedom in it. Guys, there is such bondage to it. And Paul says it is the job of the government to promote order and to corral evil behavior, negative behavior. Last one in, in this. Paul says, he bears the sword, and he is an adventurer. And, and the, the fourth thing I think the government does, it, it is meant to provide protection. And this could encompass everything from keeping a standing army to, to protect, to um, imprisoning lawbreakers, to maintaining order in a city. And it, now, with all that said, I think what Paul is specifically referring to, and this is a great one to end the sermon on, he's referring, I think, specifically to capital punishment. So this idea that God has given the sword to the state authorities, the fact that this, the authorities, he says it right here, um, they are God's avenger. This goes all the way back to the covenant that God made with creation. He didn't just make it with Noah, he made it with creation, which means it's a creation ordinance. So in other words, a creation ordinance is something given to both Christians and non-Christians. Marriage is a creation ordinance. Apparently, capital punishment is a creation ordinance given by God to the state, to society, for the protection of society. Listen to Genesis 9, 5-6. 
And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Or God made man in his own image. In other words, because we are made in the image of God, to leave murder unpunished, to leave it, to, to, to give it less than it was given, will communicate over the course of time to a society, right, that life is to be devalued, that, that life is really expendable, that life indeed is very cheap. Now, this does not mean, let me just say what I think this means and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that all systems or applications of capital punishment are just. That, it does, that's not what it means. There are unjust applications. There are unjust systems. That's not what we're talking about. What Paul's talking about is that capital punishment is a rightful instrument given by God to government, ordained by him as a means of keeping order and upholding the preciousness of life. And there we're not just talking about the life of the perpetrator. We're talking about the life of the person whose life was taken. What is that worth? Now, I understand. I'm speaking to an audience. We're in a political city, in a capital city. I don't know where you guys are politically on this. And I think there can be a variety of manifestations and positions on this politically. But let us not misunderstand what Paul is making clear, that this is a God-given instrument in the hands of the state. All we'll say is, I entrust you to the Word of God. Go explore these things for yourself, but to provide protection. Now, let me close by saying this, because as all of us, we're listening to this sermon and there, there is something in here, I believe, for all of us. There is some point of application, somewhere along the line where, whether it's heart or attitude or action, and we are wrestling right now with, am I going to submit? Am, am, I going to, am I going to lay this aside? Am I going to... Am I going to come under this word? And instead of being so critical, maybe I just need to start praying. Instead of being so hostile, maybe I need to, I, I need to, I need to really think about my leaders as servants, as ministers, as those who've been placed there by God. And if we have a hard time with that, and I have, can I tell you, as your pastor, I have a hard time with that. Look no further than Jesus. Guys, if there was ever anyone who could have said no to the injustice, no to the wrongness, no to the depression, no, no to the, the this, is a, this is a miscarriage of justice on the highest order. What did Jesus do? He went silently as a sheep to the slaughter. He, he, he bowed his knee to unjust, an unjust death. He was the least guiltiest, most innocent person to ever walk the face of the earth. 
But Jesus says, not my will, Father, but yours. I'm going to the cross, despising the shame, despising the iniquity of it, and I'm going to bear the sins of my people. I'm going to become obedient to death, even death by an unjust execution. Guys, Jesus knows all about submission. Jesus submitted himself to death for you and me. And the scripture says, no servant is greater than his master. They persecute you, they'll persecute the person persecute you, they'll persecute me. But fear not, what does he tell his disciples? I have overcome the world. Guys, we have an opportunity as citizens in the kingdom of man to walk out the principles of the gospel in such a way to say, there is a greater kingdom. There is an eternal kingdom. There is a more powerful kingdom. And paradoxically, the way that comes about is that we walk in a baseline submission to the authorities that God has given us in our life. May God give us the grace to do this. Part two next week. Let's pray.